0: My name's Mary-Jane Rust. I'm an art therapist, a Jungian analyst, a feminist psychotherapist and an eco-psychologist. I run a small private practice seeing individuals in North London and then for about the last 15 years um, in addition to that I've been giving talks, running workshops and courses and seminars and whatever else in the field of eco-psychology
1: so for people who aren't already familiar with it what is eco-psychology
0: so the first thing to say is that it's it's one of those funny questions because you can't ever give a proper definition because it's an incredibly diverse and wide field but this is where i always start because obviously i often get asked that question so um, i start with i think it faces in two directions And the first direction is facing outwards. How can we bring a psychological lens to the collective shift that we're trying to make towards sustainability? It seems that we have many of the practical solutions to be able to make that shift. And it would also seem, if we listen to the media, that really um, that's the, the arena of politicians and environmentalists. And that it's got nothing to do with us. But actually, when we look at the situation, it would appear as if we're really very stuck and that it's very, very difficult still for people to really face into this very urgent situation and think about it. So I would say we have a psychological problem. You know, I know that's not the only reason why we're stuck, but I think it's psychological in part and that we need some psychological help. Um, in many different ways. So two examples of that would be um, an organization called Carbon Conversations set up by a psychotherapist called Rosemary Randall, who has gone into lots of different organizations, NGOs, um, working in the area of um, sustainability, helping them to think about how we might communicate climate change. So it's not just about ramming dry facts down people's throats. <laughs> it's actually in, how do you engage people in this very difficult subject? Uh, there's many other, many other um, examples I could give, but I said two directions. So the other direction is, in a way, facing inwards. How does the bigger picture affect us personally? Uh, And I think this is the first hurdle in a way where people get stuck because it's so overwhelming when we face into it. We feel a lot of grief and rage and despair and impotence, particularly impotence. I think that people when when people look out there, they just don't know where to start. Many, many people want to make a difference, but they go to where they feel they can make a difference. How can we help people begin to unpack that? First of all, Um, Joanna Macy and John Seed were two environmental activists in the 1980s who realized that actually if you didn't take account of your feelings in the process of being an activist, you would very likely burn out because many activists want to stay positive and they're afraid of admitting their sense of, at times, oh my God, I'm not making a difference. This is all hopeless. Um, And so they would keep it to themselves and that would begin to eat away at them. Whereas if if collectively we can have safe containers to begin to admit to how we're feeling at times, it's like a natural cycle. We admit it, we go through a process, we come out the other side feeling empowered. Eco-psychology is also about just generally, not so much to do with the crisis, but our human relationship with the non-human world. So psychotherapists concentrate on human to human relationships and our relationship to self. We tend to think if we go and see a therapist, we're going to talk about our personal problems, and that's usually to do with the marriage that's not working or the problems at work, etc. Ecopsychology Eco-psychology would say that actually we're, we're all born into a place and into a piece of land. We have very important relationships when we grow up with pets, with trees, with the sea, with elements, with all manner of things to do with non-human relationships. Um, And this is absolutely essential in terms of um, making us human, I would say and you can see it all over the place can't you that people long for this relationship because at the moment we're pretty cut off from it i would say moving it's not just about our relationship with the non-human world out there because that it that teaches us about ourselves as animals so it's about our animal self how we relate to my intuition and my instinct How do I smell my way through life? (laughs) Rather than just relying on my head and trying to make decisions. This is what happens in this culture, isn't it? That we're taught to use our mind and our thinking and our rationality. But there's all kinds of other parts of ourselves that are very important in terms of making decisions and that actually we're very good at knowing things we have a great deal of knowledge but i would say that our culture at the moment is lacking in wisdom and wisdom comes through head heart and hands which you know a great deal about but it it, through being embodied through using all aspects of ourselves and i think it's when we go out and spend time outdoors that we begin to feel more embodied So in terms of one more piece, really, about eco-psychology, many people think that it's really just about reconnecting to nature. And there's a very important piece about language there because, of course, we are part of nature. So it's about reconnecting to the rest of nature. But I've begun to talk about how our culture affects us. And so I think a crucial part of eco-psychology is how our culture shapes our perception of the world that we live in, and that we can't possibly think about our relationship with the rest of nature without thinking about that, that we humans live well. How our culture organises things and what it teaches us is that apparently we're on top of a hierarchy of beings, and that human hierarchy puts Western values at the top and race, class, gender is somewhere swimming about in the middle and indigenous peoples are right at the bottom because they're seen as closest to the other than human world. Sometimes they're seen as animals in a very derogatory way. And then there's a thick black line underneath which all of the rest of nature sits. Actually, you could see this as capitalism really. (laughs) And that it actually What's happening at the moment, even though we are poor, slavery in the human world, in effect, we're treating the earth, the whole of the web of life, as our slaves. So there's a power relationship going on. Um, And so I would say at the core of eco-psychology is a radical shift in worldview.
1: And when we lose a connection with nature, what, what do we lose?
0: Many, many things. One one is that um, I think the motto of our culture is onwards and upwards, as if all we can think of doing is going from down there in those dark caves, making progress up into the light and into reason. Um, This is how progress is somehow visualised. And what we've lost in there is that life actually moves in cycles. You know, when we, when we live outdoors a bit more like our ancestors did, we would be taught by the seasons and by death as part of life. You know, how much contact do we have of death? Um, I've very rarely seen a dead body actually. Many children learn about death through their pets. It's their first experience of death. And it's really important. Also, very important, knowing that we are very small in relation to the greater whole, and there's no greater teacher than, say, going out there and spending five days in the wilderness, which we don't really do anymore, as a kind of rite of passage. You come away from that knowing jolly well that you are smaller (laughs) than this mysterious greater whole. It teaches you a lesson. It puts humans into their place. And I think we've really lost that sense of of place. And actually, we're longing for it. And we kind of invent all sorts of fake adventures through movies and scary, scary adventures. You know, I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. We watch it all from our comfortable armchairs on telly. We long for that adventure.
1: And how do you think that manifests in our culture? What do we see in our culture that really is a manifestation of that of that separation
0: from small things like we never eat food according to the season. Um, we want things now. We imagine that we can just have anything now. I think it makes our culture not just into adolescence, but almost into toddlers. We see these people having tantrums when when they can't get what they want. So we've lost a sense of patience. You know, I think I, fo- I you know, mobile phones are the icing on the cake. With every last moment where we could possibly be, like standing at the bus stop or sitting on a train, people <laughs> playing with their mobile phones. There's no sense of being able to tolerate frustration. And it's that frustration actually that leads to creativity and leads to the invention of new ways of being. Um, I also think that it leads to a sense of, I think there's a huge longing for something through this, through our, our lives having been separated from nature. And I think that longing gets manifested in binge drinking, binge eating. Um, all kinds of addictions, work addictions um, and I think ultimately it's actually a very destructive force when we can't actually get met by something out there, when that longing isn't met, um, when that longing for something mysterious isn't met, then I think the destructi- destruction, destructiveness manifests self-destructiveness and destructiveness towards each other and towards the world. So we are seeing this great destructiveness towards the non-human world.
1: Um, On your website, you write, this website is dedicated to nature in capital letters. Uh, Do you think there's a danger that we over-romanticise nature? Is it only a luxury of a privileged Western lifestyle that we can talk about nature in this way? Surely polio, tapeworms and tornadoes are nature. Isn't there a danger that we argue that everything natural is better than it isn't?
0: Yes, I think we very much do. Um, And I think this is a result, especially, I mean, I'm sure other places too, but in the UK, I think we live in a glorified theme park, really, you know, it's very easy, isn't it to have a very comfortable view of nature when you go walking in the park, there's no real wilderness left for us to get a sense of the danger, the danger danger actually comes to us, say, recently in the, in the flooding. The danger comes to us in illness, in viruses. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of dangers, aren't there, of our in- encounters with the other human world. But I think Western culture, again, would have us believe that we can conquer all of those problems, you know, that Western medicine can conquer them. So I think we're still living with this illusion that somehow we're on top of it all. Um, We're omnipotent. And I guess when you're an indigenous person living in it, you very quickly realise that actually nature is not a romantic place to live in. The wilderness is dangerous as well as awesome. But that it actually I think that it's like any relationship, isn't it? That if you're in a marriage, the love is amazing, but the difficulties are also there. And it's the same is true of our relationship with the non-human world. There is great love. It's very important that we nurture those attachments to the rest of nature. But we have to pay respect to it as, as a dangerous and fearful place. And some aspects of it, we really don't like at all.
1: What would a, what would a reimagined nature a relationship with nature look like?
0: Arguably, the Western world, view the, the worldview of, of industrial gro- industrial growth culture if you like is at the root of our environmental crisis that if we carry on seeing the earth as a bunch of dead objects that we can just take as we wish with no respect for life at all um, with no thought of reciprocity that no thought that this is a relationship, then you know we will carry on until we've destroyed ourselves and most of the rest of life. So how do we reimagine that? Well, it comes back to relationship. But, um, you know, in an indigenous worldview, for example, they would say that humans are one of the last species to arrive. So we need to ask permission to take what we need. And we need to live with respect for all others. But if, if that's too extreme for some people um, to think about indigeny then it's really just quite straightforward, isn't it? That we need to see ourselves as part of the web of life and not on top of it. And it's a very big project, it seems to me, to start to live with respect for other beings, to live in partnership with the rest of nature. Otherwise, we're not going to survive.
1: Um, As part of this month, we interviewed George Monbiot about his book Feral and the concept of rewilding. If we were to pursue that, and to the extent the large areas of wilderness populated with top predators and all manner of wildlife we currently lack, what would we discover about ourselves? What would happen to us at a personal and cultural level if we really let wilderness back into our landscape and our world?
0: Well, I think this is quite a difficult question to answer. Um, I mean, I'm familiar with what George Monbeau is proposing um my first sort of response to your questions that it's a kind of great unknown really what what would happen I mean, in the unlikely event, it seems to me, that we would populate our world with top predators. Uh, I can't imagine um, the powers that be really agreeing to that. But just for, let's imagine for a moment that they did agree to that <laughs> uh, and the world radically changed. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, first of all, we'd be on the menu. that would be the first reason, wouldn't it, that... that that people wouldn't allow it to happen and it's a very long time since we've been on the the dinner menu and not just us of course all the animals that we use in our farming would also be on the menu that's also why for example they don't want to reintroduce wolves to Scotland but I think what what we would find is uh, I think you get this when you if you listen to George Monbiot speak about this you, you get get a sense of coming back to life, you know, that we're no longer, there's a sense of deadness in how comfortable we've made our world. And of course, I understand why we've done that. We've lost all sense of adventure. We've lost a sense of living on the edge in ourselves. We've lost a sense of our wild selves. And as I said earlier, I think we are still you see many humans go in search of that because it's a huge piece that's missing. So we we create the adventure that we've that we've lost. So we go into wilderness for adventure holidays and sometimes people die and then health and safety get very agitated. But, you know, (laughs) introducing the top predators would be a very big issue, wouldn't it, for health and safety people? (laughs) Um, but but I, th- I suppose you know we would have we would bring back a sense of that wild part of ourselves, which it, it seems to me would be a very core part of the meaning of being alive.
1: Um, how important is connection with nature as a tool for addressing burnout in activists for positive change?
0: I think in terms of burnout, there's connection on many levels that need to happen. You know, there's a connection with self for a start. um, And I'm going to go back to what I said earlier about when we go spend time outdoors, we're reconnected to life as a cycle. And I think many activists, um, understandably, because of the urgency of the situation, go onwards and upwards as our culture has taught us to do, we don't allow for fallow periods. You know, when was the last time you heard of an activist going on a pilgrimage for eight months? They don't take time out because somehow it seems as if we've just got to get on with the cause. So that would be the first thing, to learn how to live in a cycle with oneself. And that would mean on a daily level, Um, on a yearly level, but also on, you know, that we might do seven years on and take one year off. But I think also, you know, probably it would look very different if we were living a bit more outdoors and getting that incredible sense of nourishment. That's another question for activists. Where Where do you get nourishment? You can't go on giving out. You have to have some input. Where does that come from? And I suppose for for everyone there's gonna be a different answer to that question. For me personally, I make a pilgrimage to hamster teeth every single day and I swim in the women's pond. And that takes me about an hour and a half um, if I'm quick. (laughs) And that's an absolutely essential part of my day. Um, I couldn't see endless clients without that. And I couldn't do the eco-psychology work that I do without that. Everyone has to have some form of daily practice, in my opinion, in order not to get burnt out. So that's just a few little examples.
1: The, I mean, my last question was the, the thing that came out of talking to Casper today that was really interesting. He does work with young men from the cities who've been in prison or whatever and brings them out to a wild place in Devon and they spend time in the woods and all that kind of stuff. And he said he said, when you're in a bus with them, and they come out of London and then they drive down the M5, down the A38, down the little lanes and the lanes get smaller and mossier and stuff. And then you pull into this place in the middle. That actually their, their experience is by the time they arrive there, they're terrified. Because, um, because the only time that their key experience of nature is in horror films. And the people go into the woods and terrible things happen to them. And he said that actually that film, The Blair Witch Project, probably did more damage <laughs> to a whole generation and its interaction with nature than anything else. Well I thought it was a really fascinating insight, and I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that, really.
0: That's that's an interesting view, and it's not it's not an insight that I've had, so that's quite new to me, that making that link with nature and horror films. But I would also say that it's terrifying because it's just so unfamiliar. You know, when, when I heard on the radio the other day about some kids who, who saw potatoes in the ground for the first time and said, I'm not eating, that's to do with, it's come out of dirt. <laughs> We're just not, you know, they're just not familiar with it. Or we'll milk out of cow's udders. They would probably think it was disgusting. So, so it's, it's a lot to do with familiarity, I think. Um, as much as associations of, you know, that our culture has laid, laid onto it. Because I think that um, one of the most important things about trying to make this shift, um, it's coming to me more and more strongly about how important it is to understand the resistance in our culture at, at quite a deep level to making the change and i I think it manifests in all kinds of different ways but just let me give you a couple of examples one is a green prison that i was reading about in norway um where it's uh, the prison is on an island and the men grow their own food and they spend a great deal of time outdoors and lo and behold you know um the violence towards themselves and towards the prison officers and towards each other is drastically reduced, you know with something something like eighty percent, and their reoffending rate is brought down massively after they're let out of prison. So wouldn't you think that that would be you know that when as soon as all governments in the world would hear about such a project, that they would want to convert all prisons to looking like that because it would save them enormous amounts of time and money. You radical. <laughs> but, but no, you know, uh, and couldn't you imagine what would happen in this country if such a prison were opened, that the tabloids would tear it apart immediately because prisoners must be punished. Uh, so there's a real tension there, isn't there, between what we know would be a very good idea ultimately and would save us all time and trouble and would protect people and protect the general public, and somehow an idea that people have got about what should happen. Another example, the Natural Change Project, which um, colleagues of mine, Dave Key and Margaret Kerr, have been doing up in Scotland. um, They were funded by a large green NGO Um, to set up this project where they picked key people, key leaders of the community and to take them through a six-month program which included spending large amounts of time in the wilds as well as really thinking about sustainability at a deeper level and their own relationship to the the non-human world and their own relationship to to themselves. So they go through a long process um, and come out the other end And it's had a huge impact on all of those people. And by the way, those people at the start were not greenies. You know, Um, one quote from one of them was that she'd never been off a pavement in her life. So this is quite an amazing feat that they have made such an impact, not only on these individuals, but then these individuals have taken these ideas back into their organizations and made a huge impact. It's had huge ripples right across the board in terms of policymaking, education, all sorts of things. Now, wouldn't you think that would be a really great project for, to be funded, you know, across the country, across the world? You know, here we have a new exciting way in which to enable people to live more sustainably and to communicate that to other people so effectively. But no, their funding was cut. Why? Well, I'm only left to imagine why, but I imagine because it's too touchy feely for quite a traditional green NGO. They didn't like what was going on, they didn't like the emotional process that was that, that that these people were being taken through. They it clashed with the image of their organization. Now I have to say that, you know, Dave and Margaret have taken that organization on and they've developed it um, in other ways and they're they're actually doing three year, they're about to start a three year training. So, um, But it's been a real struggle without that organizational funding. But I just think, and there's loads of examples like that. I just think it's really interesting psychologically to think about what stops us doing what makes most sense.